Good morning. Good to see some of you made it, braved the rain, the hail, the snow, the, the elements, and, and chose to come out to worship uh, with us together. Um, for those listening to the MP3, we're in Southern California, and you know, when it rains, it's, uh, we make such a big deal of it as though we're in a blizzard or something. But uh, anyway, it's good to see so many of you here uh, today. You know, if, if you were to conduct a survey and go to a mall and ask people, what do you want more than anything in life? Most people might say, well, some people would say, I just want to be rich. That would solve all of my problems. But maybe to the more intuitive, they might consider, well, you know, riches don't guarantee anything. I just want to be happy. That's what I want. I just want to be happy. And so for believers and non-believers alike, that's really what they want. Well, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 1, and we're going to see where true happiness and true joy comes from. And we're going to see that very clearly set forth. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. It's very much laid out similar to the way the Proverbs are. And so there's wisdom that can be gleaned um, from this. It shares uh, many of the the features that the Proverbs do with comparisons and contrast and and those types of things. It's didactic in that it encourages the pursuit of godliness and it also encourages fleeing unrighteousness, fleeing the path of the ungodly. Now, Psalm 1 is one of the best-known psalms. I I would venture to say that many of you know at least a few of the verses by heart, if not the whole psalm. It's one that's a good one to commit to memory and to store in your heart. And it's foundational to the whole book of Psalms. Uh, Psalm 1 has been called a preface psalm. The rest of the psalms are really a further exposition of what's laid out in Psalm 1. So Psalm 1 is very important for us. And the Psalter, much like the Sermon on the Mount, begins with a beatitude. There's a beatitude here, so it begins in that way. And in it we're going to see the traits of a godly man, both positively and negatively. What he should not do, what he should do, very simply. And then we're going to see the righteous contrasted with the wicked. Uh, Psalm 1 and in several ways, is, is similar to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount as well, where there are two paths set forth. In Matthew 7 and verse 13, it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and few there be that find it. There are several contrast set forth of the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with that verse that I just read. But there's also two trees, right? There's a, there's a good tree, there's a bad tree. There's two types of fruit. There's one that bears good fruit and one that bears bad fruit. There's ultimately two types of foundations that you can be building on, one of sand and one of the rocks. So these contrasts and comparisons go through, they take up the rest of the Sermon on the Mount And that would be a very similar theme that we're going to see here in Psalm 1. Now, Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said this. This psalm, Psalm 1, carries the blessedness as its front piece. It begins where we hope to end. It may well be called the Christian's guide, for it discovers the quicksands where the wicked will sink down to perdition and the firm ground on which the saints tread to glory. And so in it, there's, there's much here that, that we're going to learn that we can apply in our own lives. And we'll see 
the way, the path, the firm ground that leads to everlasting life, that leads to the narrow door. We'll see the broad way, the wide way, the, the way of the wicked, uh, of following the counsel of the wicked, and ultimately God's judgment upon them. So today, I've broken up the psalm into three um, sections. And the first is verses 1 and 2, the godly flee from the way of the wicked. And verse 3 will be our second point. We'll look at the prosperity and the fruitfulness of the true child of God. And then verses 4 to 6, that the wicked will indeed be judged. So let's read the text together. The title is True Happiness Found on the Path of Wisdom. Very simple. True Happiness Found on the Path of Wisdom. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, or in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God knit these words of Holy Scripture to our hearts this day. So first of all, the godly flee from the way of the wicked. The righteous are separated from sinners. That is, they do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. They don't stand in the path of sinners. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers. They, they flee from those things. And their, their propensity is to delight in the very law of God and the very Word of God and to meditate and to nourish one's soul through meditation. That's their propensity. So the psalm begins, how blessed is the man who does not do these things. What does this word blessed mean? Blessed, blessed, however you want. What does that mean? It means one that's happy, certainly, right? It means one that that is happy, supremely happy, and completely fulfilled. That is, every, every need is being met. With the blessed man who flees from wickedness and delights in the law of God, he is a satisfied man. That's one way to put it. He's satisfied. Now, note the progression of the three kinds of foolishness. You've got the counsel of the wicked, path of sinners, and then the seat of scoffers. There is a progression here. First of all, the naive, the wicked. That, that's the, the naive are those who lack practical experience and knowledge. Next, you might consider it as a fool. Speaking of a fool, the path of sinners. Because now you've begun to stand, you're demonstrating yourself to be a fool and not a wise person. And a fool is one who is deficient in judgment or sense and understanding one who acts unwisely. And so by standing in that path, you begin to demonstrate yourself as a fool. And these, these same progression we see in the Proverbs. The third being that of a scoffer, very clearly here, that they sit in the seat of scoffers. Now you've begun to not only stand, you've sat, you've begun to deride the righteous, and you've begun to disdain them and treat them with derision. Now, <clears throat> this first verse of the Psalter, verse 1 of Psalm 1, of the 150 Psalms, is set up in a beautiful uh, Hebrew poetry. There, there's three threefold comparisons here um, called parallelism. And so you've got the idea of walking, standing, sitting, right? You see those in verse 1. 
The idea of the council, the path, and the seat, right, the next one. And then the wicked sinners and mockers that we just looked at, the progression there. So let's look at each of these a little closer here as we would go through this. First of all, the blessed man, how blessed is the man who does not, what does he not do? Negatively, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This is a clear application to us that we need to be very careful of what we allow to come into the ear gate, what we allow to come into the eye gate, what we allow to enter our minds. We must be very careful with what we allow because what is the counsel that we're hearing? Anything that you put into your ears, anything that you allow to come into your eyes is persuading your mind and moving the volition in one way or another. So the clear application is we need to be very careful with what we listen to. Talk radio. It could be a television show. It could be a movie at a movie theater. It could be any number of things. Or if you're choosing a college or a seminary or or something along those lines, you need to consider the teachers. Are they fools or do they fear God? Are they wise? Are they going to instruct me in the right way to go? Other influences, the Internet, books that you read, these types of things. We need to be very careful with what you allow to come in through here, what you allow to, to listen to, and be very careful and to be able to weigh things. The Word of God, the Apostle Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals. So we need to be careful with our selection of friends. We need to be careful with <clears throat> what we spend our time on to boil it down. We need to be careful with, with, with what, we, what we do and what we listen to and, and what comes into us. Secondly, he says, the blessed man does not stand in the path of sinners. And this is where you begin to listen to the unrighteous counsel and it eventually begins to persuade ungodly behavior. So you've allowed the ear gate to put in this filth or this non-truth and now you begin to consider... Let me just think about that for a minute. And you're standing. And maybe you begin to rationalize the biblical truth. You young people that you've been instructed from your parents, that you've been instructed from your pastors. And you begin to question, maybe it's just not all true. Maybe this is the Big Bang. Maybe, maybe there is no God. And you begin to rationalize and you begin to think along these lines because you've opened up your heart to be swayed. Sin can be very subtle. We need to be very careful with what we allow to come in. The third progression here that the psalmist says is how blessed is the man that does not thirdly sit in the seat of scoffers. Now this is this is where you've just you've you've almost you've just been given over. Now you're not standing. Now you're sitting and, and now you're beginning to deride the righteous. You're beginning to justify your actions that, you know, I've got every right to do this. I've got every right to sit here and you become a promoter of evil and scoffing at the upright. And so we need to be very careful with what we allow, the counsel that we listen to, and we need to guard ourselves. And notice there's a progression here, a very clear progression that ungodly thoughts, you listen to something, you begin to mull something into the mind, and then it begins to resonate with the affections and you begin to long after it. Then it moves to the will and so now the volition's being moved to go after it. And then ultimately, you're sitting in it and you've given in to the action of whatever sin is in question. Sin is very subtle. That's why Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful lust. Flee from them. Run from them. Don't just keep walking. Don't listen. Don't stand. Whatever you do, don't sit. Flee youthful lust. Think of Joseph. 
in Potiphar's house. He did not begin to consider, well, let's see, let me rationalize. Maybe I could get away with this sex act that she wants to do here. No, he runs. It's not even an option. He flees. He runs away from the sin as it is presented to him. Think of the very three first persons in the world. You've got Eve following the counsel of the evil one. Okay? The, the parallel here with the Psalm 1 and verse 1. Eve follows the counsel of the evil one. Adam follows the example of Eve. And ultimately Cain sinned not so much by example and counsel, but by inbred corruption of the heart uh, having, with his parents having sinned. So very practically, how can we apply this? It says, do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Well, Let's say, for sake of argument, you're a recovering gambling addict, okay? You've had a problem before you're a Christian gambling, gambling your paychecks away. Well, what this means very practically is, is that if you're going on a drive into the country and you go by the Indian reservations and you begin to see flashing lights of the casinos there, you don't drive up and down that... You just turn around and look... Wait, did I see what I thought I saw? Oh, look, special blackjack or whatever they have there. And you begin to go back and forth. Look, a steak dinner for $1.99. That's not harmful, is it? Well, I'll just go in and eat. That's what I'll do. Then you go in and the next thing you know, you're standing. And then you begin to hear the bells. You know, if that's some illusion, that makes me want to run. But uh, And then you're sitting. Next thing you know, you're, you, you've progressed down like that. So very practically, you avoid the occasion of sin. You don't put yourself in a situation. The same could be true for those who have struggled with pornography. And you have pornography shops around or, or magazines in certain stores. Well, you don't sit there and get a peek, get a peek, and the next thing you know, you're standing. The next thing you know, you've you know, given back into that sin again. The, the, the counsel, the wisdom that comes from Psalm 1, verse 1, for the righteous man, the blessed man, is so clear Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The contrast between the two ways might be put like this. It is the difference between those who cherish and love their sin and those who cherish and love God above all else. And that takes us into verse 2. Verse 2, we see the character and the activity positively of the righteous. But, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law, He meditates day and night. You see, the righteous man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, the Word of the Lord, the Word of God, the the totality of the teaching of the Word of God. That is his delight. Not worldly wisdom, not carnal reason, but it's the Word of God, the source of all truth. That's his delight. And so the psalmist can say, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Word of God sheds light. There's no better thing to delight in. Think of Pilgrim's progress. As he's in the city of destruction and he's been made aware of his own sin and he knows judgment is coming, he's clinging to a book. Throughout the whole progress, he's holding his book. He doesn't want to part with his word. He's clinging to it. He's holding it even before his conversion because he knows that's a source of truth. It's opened his eyes to the truth of his own sin and the coming judgment of God. And then he's converted and all the way through till the celestial city, he's holding his book. 
He's delighting in the Word of God, the wonderful allegory of this truth. You see, God's Word, to dwell on this, to read this, should never be a burden. These are the words of life. These are the words of life. These are the words of truth. Everything else in this world is, is, is faltering and is untruth and is crumbling. But the Word of God stands forever, the Bible says. And so as you come to the Word, is it a burden? Six o'clock in the morning, ten o'clock at night, whenever you read, is it a burden? Is it hard? Our flesh sometimes makes it hard. Our sin makes it hard. Our distractions that we have sometimes makes it hard. But it ought to be the joy of our heart to want to come and to fill ourselves with the truth that God has. Too many of us delight in so many other things. We delight in a vacation that's planned for the summer and we begin to just play with that vacation in our minds and consider it and to think there's nothing wrong with looking forward to some sanctified R&R. But are we giving so much time to pleasures and to the things in this world that we begin to neglect that one thing needful? Too many of us want to run to our favorite television show or our favorite movie. We want to read our magazines. We want to think and and devise ways to build more zeros in our bank accounts. And we get distracted And we forget about the one thing needful that's going to really bring happiness is to delight in God's law, in His Word. Psalm 112 says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. Our delight is not only in knowing the Word of God. You're fairly well-taught people, mature Christians for the most part. Uh, You've studied the Word of God. You've even memorized the Word of God. But it's more than that, brethren. It's doing the Word of God. You can know all that in your head and in your heart and be damned to hell. You have to have a desire to want to say, yes, Lord, by God's grace, I want to make the law of the Lord my delight so that it affects my behavior. And to assist in that, I will meditate on it day and night and to consider the truths that are unshakable and everlasting. Our delight is in doing the will of the Lord. And this delight only comes to those who have been born again. It's an indication that a new birth has taken place. A conquered and a converted will. A will that was going after the things of this world has now been conquered and and the disposition of one's heart changed to run after God. We know that a sinful mind is hostile to God and cannot submit to God, nor can it. A wise and a blessed man makes the Word of God his constant counselor. His constant counselor in every decision of every day, in every consideration of wrestling with one's sin and examining oneself. This is the touchstone. This is what we need to compare ourselves to. Not our neighbor. Not Billy at our old church. Not anyone else. Not somebody in a movie. Not some celebrity. We compare ourselves to the standard of the Word of God. And it will guide us. We need to recognize it has supreme authority in our lives. Well, he moves on. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. You see, to meditate on the Word of God, you must really have true delight. There must be a true delight in the Word of God to meditate. Because you're going to run to those things that really delight you. And those are the things that you're going to fill your time with. 
but to meditate on the truths of the Word of God. What better thing to fill our mind with? The Proverbs in 23.7 says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. Now the Hebrew word here for meditate is that word that means to mutter or mumble. That's the idea. and It's, it's actually telling yourself the same thing again and again and to consider. To chew the cud is the, the common expression. You know, the cow is chewing and eating and swallows and then brings it back up and chews it again. That's the idea of a meditation, a mummering, a muttering over the truths of God. And, and it's interesting, you have to remember, when was this psalm written? Some 3,000 years ago, roughly, give or take, right? God's people throughout most of the last 3,000 years have not had a copy of this of their own. They have not had a copy of that. And so what did they do? They would memorize short sections. They would meditate. They would say it over and over and over and over to themselves and dwell on these things because they did not have a completed canon as we do. The invention of the printing press is made so that we've got so many editions of the Word of God laying around, some of us multiple copies, and yet it's still neglected. But we're to meditate, brethren, to meditate day and night. Now, What this means is, not at the beginning of the day, not at the end of the night or the beginning of the night, it means all the time, not just during your devotions, not just on Lord's days. Well, I spend extra time meditating on Sundays. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's day. It means all the time, all the day as 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 a habit, as a matter of pattern in our lives. We're to be meditating on the truths of the Word of God. Meditating on things that you're reading and that you're filling your mind with and mulling them over and considering them as they would drive home into your heart the truth that is here. Remember when Joshua was commissioned after the passing of Moses, what does it say? Do not let this law of the Lord depart from your mouth so that you will be careful and meditate on it. Why? So that you will be careful to do all that I have commanded you. That's the reason. Psalm 119 could have been a a scripture reading, would have took 20 minutes, but a a very parallel to Psalm 1. But just a few select verses here. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all of my heart. Then in 103, it says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Is that the way the Word of God is to you? 127, Therefore I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Can we really say that? Do we love God's law, His commandments, His Word, the totality of the teaching here above gold? I hope we can by God's grace. The psalmist in 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law! It is my meditation day and night. There is a love there. And so the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, needs to be our daily bread and the true delight of the true believer of God. We need to meditate until we spiritually digest the word of God. All too often when we read, we say, okay, I'm going to read two chapters a day. And we we read it like shoving a stake in our mouths and shove it down there and it doesn't digest. Chew on it. Let it digest. Let it work so that it will affect your heart. Spiritually digest the word of God. And this will bring true delight to your soul. I remember 
Thomas Watson, uh, great Puritan for giving illustrations and stuff, very easy to understand. In his book, The Bible in the Closet, he says this, Just as the bee sucks the flower and works it into the hive and so turns it to honey, so too by reading God's Word we suck it. We suck God's Word and we make it, we work it into the hive of our mind and so that it turns to profit. And the, and the idea of meditating on that. And so we've worked that. Just as a bee has all that patience to collect the pollen and so forth and to take it back to the hive and work it all into the hive, a very long process, so too we with the Word of God. Thomas Watson from another work, The Saint's Spiritual Delight, he says this, Meditation does discriminate and characterize a man. By this, he may take a measure of his heart, whether good or bad. Meditation is the touchstone of a Christian. It shows what type of metal he is made of. It is a spiritual index. An index shows the contents of a book. A spiritual index. So meditation shows what is in the heart. To the degree that you meditate, it shows what type of a Christian you are. Well, moving on. We've looked at verses 1 and 2 so far. In verse 3, if you delight in God's law, you will be prosperous. It says, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. No, you could do a series of sermons on this verse alone. You could do a series of sermons on Psalm 1. We're going to look at it, obviously, in a very summary type fashion. So first of all, in verse 3, the result is that you will be strengthened and made stable. I think that's what's communicated here by the idea that he, the godly man, will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of waters. You know, if you've done any gardening, if you've done any um, uh, tried, trying to remove trees, you know that some trees remove a little easier than others. I remember taking an axe one time to uh, trying to get a root of a tree that's been cut down out of the ground. And just working for hours on that, that tree was firmly planted and it doesn't come up easily. And that's the picture for the child of God. A child of God that is nourished and here by the streams of water has deep roots so that the wind and the storm will not knock him over and topple him over headlong. Your life will thrive like a flourishing tree. And in wisdom literature, a tree is a picture of wisdom itself. A tree firmly planted, nurtured, and cared for by God Himself. You see, what God begins in a soul, He completes. Philippians 1.6, right? He's going to bring it to completion. And I trust that you have experienced some stability in your life if you're trusting in Christ here today. Think of your unconverted state before you came to Christ. Think of the disarray. Think of the, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the lack of peace. Think of all of the times in which you've been toppled over and knocked down and brought back up and all of that. And then when God saves you, it's as though you're firmly planted. You know, He's the one bringing the nourishment. You know, He's the one providing for you. He's the one sustaining you. And so you can withstand these storms as they would come. Jeremiah 17 was our Scripture reading in verse 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in the year of drought nor cease to bear fruit. 
There's something about the rivers of God's grace communicated here. There's something about the nourishment that comes from this water that strengthens and sustains and makes strong the tree of God. And the, the godly man is here pictured to a tree firmly planted by streams of water. The rivers of God's grace are inexhaustible. The, the promises contained in His Word that if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us. That if we're united to Christ, we have a real communion with Him. And we do not run dry. These rivers do not run dry. You will be fruitful as you delight in the Word of God. You will have patience during trials. You will be able to face difficulties in this life by God's grace with a measure of faith, an increased faith. It says the leaf does not wither. That is, no matter what type of persecution, what type of drought, what type of trials God brings, the leaf does not wither and become crumbly like a dead leaf and blow in the wind. It does not wither. It's an evergreen, if you will. It never withers. God preserves you. And I think communicated within that is that you will be yielding fruit. It yields its fruit in its season. The leaf does not wither. And so there's some type of abounding fruit going on. A productivity, if you will, with your life. Your life has purpose here. There's a reason why you're here. Um, I read a story recently of uh, a, a missionary family in China. Their name it was the Matthews. And they were the last missionaries to escape after the communists took over China after World War II. And for two years, they lived in a very tiny, small room with their daughter, the only furniture that they had in that room was a wooden stool. Their finances had been cut off, the, the support from outside, except for a very tiny small amount that made it through. Their only source of heat was a tiny stove in the corner that they only lit once a day, and that was to boil the small bit of rice that they had. The only fuel that they had for the stove was dried animal dung that they had to go and collect to bring in. For two years, brethren, they lived in this situation as missionaries in China. And you know, after their escape, they wrote a book about God's grace during those two years. And you know what the title of that book was? It was entitled, Green Leaf in Drought Time. Green leaf and drought time. Why? Because they found that, that as they would delight themselves in the Word of God and the purposes of God, that God was sustaining them. Their leaf did not wither even in that situation. Only cooking with animal dung and having a very small amount of rice each day. Testimonies to God's grace and sustaining the people of God abound like that one. The leaf does not wither. God does not allow that leaf to die, to be crumpled up, and to be destroyed. He sustains. He's worthy of our worship. Well, the very end of verse 3 says, And whatever you do, you will prosper. Whatever He does, He prospers. And now this is not a promise that we will be rich, obviously. But it's the idea that nothing will shake you. What you put your hand to will have a measure of success as it is blessed by God and it is as, as, as you receive your energy and strength from God. You're able to endure the difficult times and the hard times as we've been considering the last few weeks by God's grace and you will abound in the fruit of God. Even if He's pruning you from time to time, the leaf does not wither. He'll prune you. He's going to shape you. He's going to be molding you into the image of Christ.
And so we need to examine ourselves today. Where are we? Are we bearing fruit like this? Is our leaf green? Are we spiritually thriving? Or have we been walking down that counsel of the wicked? Have we been going the wrong way? Have we been one foot in the world and one foot in the church? Have we been living a double life? These are questions to ask. Well, let's move on. <clears throat> the, uh, we saw the godly flee from wickedness and delight in the Word of God. We saw how they will be prosperous finally and more briefly. The wicked do not prosper but have a terrible end. Here's a huge contrast here before us. We've had verses 1 to 3 demonstrating the godly man, what he does positively and negatively. But here it says the wicked are not so. A valid translation would be, not so the wicked, not so. Okay, slow down. Not so the wicked, not so. Everything that is said of the righteous is completely reversed here. They go from bad to worse. They choose the bad company. They ultimately end up being scornful and deriding the righteous. They progress from walking to standing to ultimately sitting with the scoffers. And it says in God's Word that they will be like chaff which the wind dries away. Jeremiah, in the passage in the Scripture reading, talks about this dry bush in the desert. And here the psalmist talks about chaff. What is chaff? Chaff is something that's like wheat, but it's utterly worthless, right? You have to picture the scene here in Palestine. So, the, the grain harvest would happen. The, the grain would be brought in. Sometimes animals would step on the threshing floor to break down the, the, the seed. And then with the, up on a hill with the breeze blowing, the grain would be thrown up in the air. The heavy grain would fall back down. The chaff would blow off, off to the side there and blow over and be collected and to be burned. So that's how they separated the wheat and the chaff. And here the wicked are compared to chaff that the wind blows away. Nothing but a light, flaky substance that just blows in the wind. However they appear before the world, however successful in the world's eyes, if they're destitute of a vital union with Christ and a, a special spiritual life with Him, if they're strangers to God's grace, they are unfit for the presence of God and are cursed like chaff. Chaff that just blows in the wind. Whatever appearances of godliness, some that are living the hypocritical life, whatever temporal prosperity they have will be found counterfeit at the end and they will be judged. The wind drives it away, it says. Think of it. The ungodly are those who have no substance. They're light. They're flaky. There's no substance. There's no real religious convictions of what's right or wrong. It's often just all gray as far as I can justify this sin. I can justify that sin. There's no substance to them. There's no righteous convictions based on the Word of God. And so they're compared to chaff that the mere wind blows away. And then in verse 5, we see who will stand in the judgment. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. How terrible it is for those who have not trusted Christ. The end of the wicked, John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, he says, His winnowing fork is in His hand, speaking of Christ, and He will thoroughly clear the threshing floor, and He will gather His wheat into His barn, but He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Strong words about the judgment 
that will come upon those who have not trusted in Christ. The wheat and the chaff lay on the same threshing floor now. That some, some ways from a distance, they even look alike. And in the same way, the ungodly and the godly now live together. They're mixed in the world, in the workplace. You can't see, you don't know for sure who is elect and who is not, who is chosen, who's, who's fearing God. There will be a perfect separation when the Lord's come, when the Lord comes to separate. The parable, the wheat and the tares, consider that. What did our Lord say? He said, no, don't, 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 don't tear the, the tares down now. Let them grow together. But in the great day, that final day, they will be separated and the unrighteous will be sent to judgment and to hell. I wonder if we will be amazed when we find out in the end who, who we thought was, were saved and ultimately were not saved. I think it may be a shock for some of us. Those whom we've worked with, a family member, that we thought there was a profession, we thought there was some measure of fruit, and, and we didn't want to question the heart, and when we know that God is in control of these things, we may be shocked to find out that they had no saving relationship with Christ at all. And it says that they will not stand in the judgment. That is, there's no merit to stand. The righteous stand in the judgment. How? Because their proclamation is Christ. It's, I'm cleansed with Christ's blood. The wicked have no merit whatsoever. Their good works are nothing. They will not stand in the judgment. Nor will they be present with the righteous. God's chosen people will live forever in heaven in a true paradise. And didn't Christ tell His disciples that last night, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I will come again and receive you unto Myself. And I hope you're longing for this day. In verse 6, we see, uh, to sum it up, for the way... For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Again, two ways, two final ends. Again, this comparison that wisdom literature tends to have. The Lord knows your ways. And so for the child of God, He knows the difficulties that you experience every day. Jesus is our great high priest. He truly sympathizes with us. All of our trials, all of our toils, all of our difficulties that we experience causes us to long for heaven all the more. And though the wicked appear to prosper now, remember Psalm 73 we looked at last week or the week before, um, you know, it's, it, there may be an appearance of prosperity in the wicked, but ultimately they will be found wanting. So where are you today? Where is your trust today? Where is your delight? As we draw some concluding applications, do you see yourself in this psalm? We've seen two groups of people, very simple, the righteous and the wicked. Do you see yourself here? You are either among the righteous or the wicked. Are you on the path to wisdom? Do you see some spiritual vitality in your life? Though not perfectly, though not, not the way you would long to have it be, but do you see some life? Do you see some fire there? Take courage. And begin to make His law, His Word, your, your delight that you would fan the flame into full flame. The wise, the godly person, the righteous person depends on godly guidance. His Word is a lamp unto my feet. And you know, that's, that's, we teach our children that. One of the first memory verses that they know. But do we apply that as adults to our own lives? 
All too often we go to carnal reason and, and rationalizing and thinking about these things. No, go to God's Word. What does His Word say about a given situation? The godly man abhors the life of the unrighteous, the ways, the counsel of the wicked. He's careful with what he allows in his ears and his eyes because he knows that he's a sinful man. He knows that he can be enticed. He knows that he can be swayed. And so he must guard these things. And the wise man makes the Word of God his constant counselor in all things. But if you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, there's no delight in meditating on the Word of God. There's no delight in even thinking about Jesus Christ. You may think He's a nice person, a, a good prophet, or whatever you're, you're thinking. But if you're not trusting in Him and His death on the cross, you cannot be saved. You will not find true delight in His Word unless your heart has been changed. And so you must see your sin. You must repent of your sin. And you must cry out for mercy. Ask Him to renew you, to change your heart. And then where is Christ pictured in this psalm? I think you've probably seen it. He is the perfect man. He is the, author, the, the righteous man. He is the one that delights in God's law. He is the one that was separate from sinners. He is the one that, that bears much fruit. He is the one that makes us righteous by virtue of His work on the cross. He was altogether separate from sinners and how we ought to follow in His steps. He was stable. He was like a man with, with, a, with a tree firmly planted. Even in temptation, even in 40 days of, of temptation in the desert, He was a man that was not given in to sin. And so how we ought to look to Him to receive our strength and our nourishment that comes from Him as we would walk in this world. And so, brethren, let us apply these words to our hearts. True happiness is found on the path of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we bless You and thank You for the simplicity of this psalm. We thank You for its clarity. We pray, O God, that You would knit these words to our heart. We pray for any here that do not know You. We ask, O God, that today would be the day of salvation. We pray that they would call out for salvation. In Jesus' name, Amen.